Good afternoon. So good to see you all today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to 1 Kings chapter 9 and 10. What is more important to you than God? Of course, although as a Christian, you may say that God is most important in your life, but if you examine your life closely, if others around you were to assess your life currently, not because they want to judge you, but because they love you, based on how you live your life, based on what you talk about the most, based on what you value most, based on how you spend most of your time, how you spend most of your money, based on what they see on your social media feed, based on your weekly schedule. What would your life really show? What would they really say are the top priorities of your life? Is it your family, your spouse, his or her approval, his or her happiness? Is it your children, their schedules, their activities, their future? Is it your career, your job security, your promotion, your retirement plan? Is it your school, your degree? Is it your finances? Is it your boyfriend or girlfriend, your engagement, your wedding, your honeymoon? Is it your vacation? Is it late nights with friends? Is it computer games? Is it sporting events? Is it sleeping in so you won't be tired the next day for work? If you're being honest with yourselves, what do you or what have you prioritized that comes before or above God? What is it that you wouldn't think twice about missing or giving up or bending your schedule to make it work? Whereas missing a Sunday service, missing your Bible reading, missing a prayer meeting, missing a community group, rescheduling a discipleship meeting, skipping a monthly tithe or offering you don't think twice about. Of course, the things that we prioritize in our lives other than God are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. After all, you've got to take care of yourself, right? You've got to take care of your family, right? As a parent of three kids myself, I have to care for my children and their health and their future, right? We understand that. You've got to make sure that your job is secure. James 1.7 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. God has given us everything good in our lives. But I'm just asking, if those good gifts from the Lord continue to take priority over God and what He commands should come first in our lives, or worse yet, if we make those good gifts that God has given us become stumbling blocks to our faith and our devotion to God. We pray so desperately for God to intervene when we are in need, don't we? For a job, for a promotion, for an acceptance, for a spouse, for a boyfriend, for a girlfriend, for a raise, for a house, for a child. But when God provides or gives us relief from that need, what do we do? Are we as faithful and committed to God? Are we as dire in our prayers? Are we as obedient? Are we as prayerful before God? If what I'm saying is making you a bit uncomfortable, it's quite simple, actually. God has always commanded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So the question for us this afternoon is, do you? If not, why not? Jesus asked Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? He asks us in time, do you? Love me? He asks a third time, Do you really love me? 
I believe the Holy Spirit asks us the same today. Do you really love me more than these? Then, what's Jesus' response to Peter? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. I ask you these questions because in the passage we have before us today, King Solomon struggled hard with priorities. Although God had given him much, Solomon became a terrible steward of the blessings God had given him. Although at first Solomon seemed to be a pretty decent king, amounting for himself such amazing accolades. It wasn't long, however, before other priorities lead him astray from God. It sounds way too cliche, actually, if you read it. But glory, gold, and girls became Solomon's downfall. And the fallout of his demise has tragic consequences for all those whom he was responsible to. And our passage this afternoon teaches us some priceless lessons through Solomon's prosperity. We're continuing our study through First and Second Kings in our series, The King of Kings. And as I've shared, the kings is about the short-lived, peaceful reign of the United Kingdom of Israel under King Solomon's reign. And Israel's eventual division, downfall, decimation, and exile. But the message of this book is clear. And its profound lesson still is powerful to his people today, to you and me. Kings fail. Kingdoms fall. But the word of the Lord stands. In our passage today, at the height of Solomon's reign and prosperity, we begin to see what would become Solomon's eventual downfall. Solomon serves us as an example and a warning of who and what a servant of God ought not be. Solomon was the wisest king, yet became a fool. Solomon was the richest king, yet became spiritually bankrupt. Solomon was the greatest of earthly kings. He was the epitome of human greatness, yet he became an apostate because he loved the things of this world more than he loved God. Solomon was someone who was given everything, yet lost everything. Solomon was one who was beloved of God, yet he was not a man after God's own heart. But what we learn through the kings is that there is much more going on than simply the story of Solomon and the nation of Israel. There is a greater story being told. The story of a greater Solomon who would lose everything for us to gain everything. So from our passage, 1 Kings 9 and 10, I want to share with you four greater truths Solomon teaches us. Four greater truths. Solomon teaches us. Here's the outline so you can follow. You're taking notes. Point number one, a greater priority from verses one through nine. Point number two, a greater political power, verses 10 through 28. Point number three, from chapter 10, verse one through 13, a greater prosperity. Chapter 10, verse one through 13. And fourth and finally, a greater prophecy from chapter 10, Verses 14 through 29. A greater priority, a greater political power, a greater prosperity, and a greater prophecy. Brothers and sisters, I pray through this final message of year 2023, God's Spirit will convict you and challenge you to examine your priorities. I pray this word will remind you once again to look to Him who is greater than all earthly goods. Amen? Guests and visitors, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for our Sunday service. I get surprised every time you somehow find us as we're meeting in different locations. For the next three weeks, we're meeting in three different locations. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for loving Jesus. Thank you for joining us for our service today. If you do not consider yourself as a Christian, we especially welcome you. 
We have been praying for you, praying that the Lord would lead you here today to hear his word. Scripture says, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And so we pray that you would hear these very words of God and believe and trust in him who speaks to those who would have ears to hear. Amen? So without further ado, let's turn now to his word found on page 290 and 291 in the Blue Bibles around you. And while you turn there, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open and reference it often for the entire duration of the message so that you know that this is God's word for you so that you don't get bored, so that you know that this is God's word for you to grow you in faith and trust in him. We have a longer passage today, so let's just dive into the first point. In question form, what does Solomon's prosperity teach us? Point number one, a greater priority from verses one through nine. The lingering question of these earlier chapters of First Kings has been, Solomon is the chosen king, but is Solomon the obedient king? By God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant to King David, Solomon's father, in 2 Samuel 7, God has allowed Solomon to reign as the next king of Israel. And as according to God's promise, he has allowed Solomon to build him a temple where his presence and glory would dwell with his people. As we talked about, this was the high point of Israel's history. But God wasn't done with Solomon yet. God's intent was to continue to bless Solomon. So look at verses 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Brothers and sisters, this was an incredible moment. Now that God had established Solomon's kingship firmly and granted him the wisdom he desired more than anything, now that God had allowed Solomon to finish building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, now that God has consecrated his temple, which meant that he affirmed Solomon's reign and blessed Solomon with riches and reputation beyond any other kings of Israel, more than any other kings in that known world. In verse 2, it says, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon in a dream. And this second visitation was an invitation for Solomon to continue to look to God and trust in him. It was God's loving warning to the chosen king of Israel. Keep me first as your father David did. Then I will keep my covenant with you. In verse 3, God says he has answered Solomon's seven petitions from 1 Kings 8, 22 through 53. Verse 3 says, And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And we'll see later in the passage, it's fascinating how God answers Solomon's petition in other amazing ways. But for now, the important point being made is what will Solomon do after his prayers have been answered? Look at verses 4 through 6 and on. It says this. <clears throat> God says, And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children... And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. 
And God promised to Solomon there are two conditions for his continued blessing. But actually it's one, obedience. God is asking Solomon for continued obedience. God was saying to Solomon, I'm not through with you. I have more things to show you. I've done my part. I will continue to keep my covenant. I will keep my word. This is who I am. But as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David did, if you do not turn aside from following me, nor cause your children or lead your people astray by keeping my commandments and my statutes and not serving other gods and worshiping them, then my promise is with you. I will be for you. My presence will dwell among you. What you do, Solomon, how you obey my words will matter for you. And the nation of Israel was what God was saying. Now, some might take these conditions as threatening. Is God saying, be faithful to me and I'll be faithful to you? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. Yet, we have to understand, this is the very basic command of our faith. The particular issue God is mentioning is the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It was a simple but foundational command. Love, trust, and worship me only. It wasn't a far-fetched command for the chosen leader of God's chosen nation that the king of God's people would worship Yahweh alone, was it? In verses 7 through 9, God warns Solomon the consequences of turning from him to idol worship. So look at those verses 7 through 9. Then I will cut off from Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword of all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. What was God warning Solomon? He was saying there are more important things, Solomon, than gloriously, lavishly built temples. That there are more important things than a homeland for the people to call their own. That there are more important things than a royal throne or a kingdom. To walk before God with integrity of heart and uprightness, to keep God's commandments and His statutes, to serve no other gods but Yahweh alone. What's the most important God was reminding Solomon and teaching us, none of it matters. None else matters. God was reminding Solomon and us today that we would not forget, that we would not forget what really truly matters. To walk before God in faithfulness, in humility, and in trust. So brothers and sisters, the lesson of these verses through Solomon are simple for you and me. There is no greater priority there is no more higher theology for you to know and obey than simply love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your might. This is the great, the greatest commandment. So dear beloved, what is your greater priority? What do you honestly love more than you love God? What do you consistently place over devotion and service to Him? What are the areas of obedience to God you have grown cold in? Perhaps in discipleship, in scripture reading, in purity and holiness, in evangelism? What area of obedience to God have you grown cold in? After the Lord has answered your prayers for a job, for a spouse, for a promotion, for a position, for a title, 
Have you perhaps forgotten that it's never been about you, but about his faithfulness and grace and mercy to you? This word is reminding us, keep being faithful. Don't turn away serving and worshiping idols. Don't forget your basic duty. Worship God alone. Put him first. Obey his commands. Dear beloved church family, I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict your heart this afternoon and press upon your heart the most loving and merciful warning so that you do not turn aside from following God alone, that you do not go and serve other gods and worship your idols, whatever that may be. Whatever that takes, the greater priority over him, material or immaterial, all the things that I talked about in the intro, spouses, children, parents, jobs, security, money, entertainment, etc., your fears, your anxieties, your loneliness, your trauma, your disabilities, your marital status, your past hurts, your present circumstances, your future uncertainties, whatever in your life that gets the higher and final word, may they not take precedence over God. Would you take these substitute gods and submit them to God today? Would you entrust God with these things? Have you considered how God can and will and is able to carry you through these trials? Have you laid them before the Lord and said, these things are huge and important and some of it's very, very painful. But to you, O Lord, I lift up my cares and burdens. In you I trust. For you I surrender it all. Have you prayed that prayer? As we close out 2023 and look to 2024, how might we come before God in humble and honest submission and put Him and His will first? Granted all the blessings you've received from the Lord, how might Solomon be a warning to you that God is the greater priority, that He is the one and only superiority? In 2024, in your life, how might God take precedence over everything else, especially with the gifts that He's given to you? Spouses, children, everything, job, everything. How might your prayers be more? Lord, I want to know you more. I want to be more faithful to you. I want to do your will in this new year ahead. Instead, Lord, give me this or give me that. How might you seek the Lord to grow in your capacity to love and serve him and love and serve others? Solomon's prosperity teaches us that Solomon had greater priorities other than God. And so may we learn from Solomon's example. May we take heed the Lord's warnings. You'll notice that things begin to go south after the Lord allows Solomon to accomplish his most greatest accomplishment in building the temple, in building the house of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that the author brings up again in verse 1 and also in verse 10 the fact it was after Solomon had built everything. In the first part of verse 10, look at it. It says, at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Things begin to go south. Solomon was in his 24th year of his reign. But here, in about the half mark of Solomon's reign, Solomon begins to have a middle reign crisis. It's meant to emphasize for us the measure of man's faithfulness is not marked by his accomplishments, but his perseverance. A measure of a man's faithfulness is not marked by his accomplishments, but his perseverance, which leads us to the second point. What does Solomon's prosperity teach us? Point number two, a greater political power from verses 10 through 28. In these next verses, we have some interesting insight in Solomon's character. Solomon does some really questionable things, and we don't know what to do with it. Look at verses 11 through 14. It says this. And Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar, cypress, timber, and gold as much as he desired. 
King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kinds of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Cabal to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Hiram, the king of Tyre, is first mentioned in 1 Kings 5. He was a foreign king and friend of the former king David, Solomon's father. This is not Hiram who built furnishings for the temple in 1 Kings 7. King Hiram had sent representatives to congratulate Solomon becoming king, and also the one who supplied Solomon with all the materials and the men he needed to build the temple. Verse 11 says, King Hiram of Tyre had supplied Solomon with cedars and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. So you would think that given their history, their friendship through the years, that they had a good partnership. Yet we read in the next verses, in verse 12 and 13, Solomon would repay Hiram's generosity with more generosity. That's what we would think. Yet Hiram is rewarded with 20 cities, which are cable, which means worthless. Hiram is rewarded with worthless cities. Hiram responds to Solomon, what kinds of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? It's obvious that Hiram was displeased. Yet it says in verse 14, Hiram sends Solomon 120 talents of gold. That's a lot of gold. Four tons of gold. In today's day, that's worth about $225 million worth of gold. And Hiram continues to support Solomon as you read in verses 26 through 28. So what we see is this. Although Hiram saw Solomon as a brother, Solomon saw him as a subordinate, a junior partner, if you will. Solomon was definitely the greater political power, the superior king. Some scholars argue what we also see is Solomon's wisdom at work, that Solomon was a sharp and shrewd businessman, able to make a good profit and accrue much wealth. But perhaps what we see is the beginnings of Solomon's integrity being compromised. The conniving side of Solomon, accruing gold and building up his own kingdom and wealth and political power at the expense of Hiram, giving away Israel's God-given land without a second thought. In verses 26 through 28, we see Solomon even building a royal navy, a fleet of ships, again, at the expense of Hiram's gold, this time 420 talents. That's a massive amount of gold. Verses 15 through 19 tells us of all the forced labor King Solomon drafted for his massive construction projects. After building the house of the Lord and his own house, Solomon gains a voracious appetite for real estate. He knew this was where the money was at, the dollar bills at, right? Look at the list of stuff that he builds there in verses 15 through 19. The summary verse is at the end of verse 19. And whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. Verses 20 through 25 further provides Solomon's questionable and confusing practices. Thousands of slaves were to be employed for Solomon's building projects. Look at verses 20 through 21. It says this. All the people who were left of the Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites, the Hives and the Jebusites, who are not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. Basically, what these verses are saying is those who weren't killed in the war were made slaves and forced into labor. Verse 22 is interesting, which says, But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. As well as verse 25, it kind of stands out. 
and these verses stands out to us because they almost seem out of place. Verse 25 says this, three times a year, in the midst of all these things that Solomon is doing, three times a year Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord, so he finished the house. As Solomon is engaging in his massive construction projects, it seems he at least is making an effort to be what the king of Israel was supposed to be doing. Solomon was doing, at least on the outside, what he was supposed to do, honoring his own people, worshiping God at least three times a year, most likely Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Yet, what we can speculate, which we don't want to do too often unless there's good reason to, in, the, in, in this case, context, tells us that we are not far off in our judgment. Why these verses 25 and 22 sticks out is because there are seeming inconsistencies, as we read, of a king compromising his integrity and amassing for himself way more wealth, way more political power than perhaps is fitting for someone who is a worshiper of God, a king of God's own people. You read these verses and you're not thinking, wow, Solomon is such a faithful king. You don't think that. Solomon is a worshiper of God. No. You rightly think, uh-oh, Solomon is in trouble. Warning signs. So brothers and sisters, what profound lessons these verses teach us through Solomon. You can be doing all the right things on the outside, yet if your actions are inconsistent with your character and your heart's desires, you can't fool anybody, especially God. To be more specific, you can come to church every Sunday. You can be checking off all the right religious and spiritual boxes in terms of your outward behavior. But if the way you talk and the way you engage in conversations, the way you participate in service, the way you worship, the way you talk about the word, the way you love and serve others, the way you act toward those who are less reputable than you or cool as you in your mind are very telling of you and your character. In other words, it's not hard to tell a fake from real. Now, of course, we ought not to focus so much on what others think about us. No, the point of application is, who are you really? Who are you, really? Are you the real deal or not? Are you the real deal or not? How might God look at you, especially in the way you worship him, in the way you engage in our gathering week after week? How might others observe of you in the way you love and serve others? Examine your heart today. Solomon certainly had the greater political power. He was gifted. Hiram submitted to the unfair partnership but Solomon took advantage. Solomon was a jerk, at least to Hiram. How about you? Maybe you too are in a position of power at work, in your home, or in certain relationships. You are clearly the one who has the higher authority as a boss, as a father, as a mother, an older brother, older sister, as an elder or a deacon, as a music leader, as a discipler, as a reformed theologian. But what you do with that God-given authority determines who you truly are. Are you loving and humble? Do you treat others with respect and love? Well, there's more lessons to be learned in our next point. This is where things get really, really exciting. Some of you guys are look quiet, but this is where it gets really exciting. So be with me, all right? What does Solomon's prosperity teach us? Point number three, a greater prosperity from chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Verses 1 through 13 is a famous account in the Kings of the visit of the queen of Sheba. So look at chapters 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. I'm just going to read the whole thing. 
Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue and camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpass the report that I have heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He had made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made of the almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house and also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almug wood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to Queen of Sheba all that she desires, whatever she asked besides what was given by her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Brothers and sisters, this is such a fascinating account. The Queen of Sheba, which represents present-day Yemen, famous in their day for perfumes, incense, golds, and precious gems, travels some 1,500 miles to verify whether the reports she's heard of the wisdom of the new king of Israel was really true. Of course, she came with great expectation because she comes to Jerusalem with a great retinue, a company of assistants and advisors, and with all the treasures of her own land. It says she told him all that was on her mind, all sorts of questions she had about everything. Back then, there was no Google search. So this was the moment she gets to ask every single question that she had on her mind. She was one of the curious sort, if you will. She wanted to know if Solomon was really as wise as people said, as she had heard he was. And we are told in verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when she had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, how he built his houses, when she tasted the food on his table, the seating arrangement of his officials, their clothing, their fashion, the way he burnt offerings to God, the wisdom and the knowledge of Solomon's minds, the intricacies of architecture, the details of Solomon's governance, the deliciousness of the food, the beauty, the arrangement, the brilliance, the freshness, the innovation of everything she saw, it says at the end of verse 5, there was no more breath in her. No, that doesn't mean she died. Well, maybe in the Gen Z slang sense, she dead. Skeleton emoji. No, it doesn't mean, well, it means that. It means her breath was taken. Right? She was blown away by what she saw. She said in the verse 7, your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I've heard. Solomon's prosperity was greater than what she had even imagined. Furthermore, verses 10 through 13 explains the gifts that Solomon receives from Queen of Sheba. And again, from the fleet of Hiram, more gold, 
a very great quantity of spices and precious stones, a very great amount of olive wood and precious stones, and it's summed up. Never again came such abundance as that the queen of Sheba gave to the king Solomon. No such olive wood has ever come or been seen to this day. No such greater prosperity was seen or known on the earth as in the time of Solomon's reign. So here's something fascinating. There's a lot of speculation about what was going on between Queen of Sheba and King Solomon among biblical scholars and in church history. And it may be warranted given that what we'll see in the next chapter about Solomon's love for foreign women. The speculation was there was something more going on between the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Some historians conjecture that the Queen of Sheba came to seduce Solomon and somehow their descendant was the Ethiopian eunuch who gets saved in Acts. All sorts of conspiracy theories abound. But again, there's no such confirmed speculation in the Bible at all. What is confirmed, however, is that in Matthew 12, 42, and in Luke eleven thirty one, Jesus himself would reference the Queen of Sheba and this very account. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 42, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Oh my goodness, this is so good, isn't it? Jesus shuts down whatever nonsense, speculation, whatever doubts we may have about the queen's motives, whatever unspoken cultural or societal objectifications we may have had about this curious woman seeking to acquire wisdom. Jesus holds up the queen of Sheba as one who came from the ends of the earth to seek wisdom and finds it and is blessed. You noticed in verse 9, the queen praises God in worship as our brother Danny prayed. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Whatever doubt we may have had about the queen's genuine conversion, Jesus puts that to doubt. Look back at verse 10 1. Did you notice the queen of Sheba came because she had heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord? Yes, it's true. She came to see of Solomon's wisdom, but also she knew and came to confirm that the great wisdom and prosperity that Solomon showed was from God, the God of Israel, who granted that wisdom. She came seeking, concerning the name of the Lord, as the verse indicates. And she leaves blessing and praising that very God that the king may execute justice and righteousness. And Jesus says, this queen on that final day of judgment will condemn the generation who still does not believe in the one who is greater than Solomon. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that the queen of Sheba will be the final judge of men. No. Jesus is using her as an example, as one who came seeking true wisdom, found it, and believed, as opposed to those who are part of God's nation, yet did not seek and did not believe and did not worship God. Get this, brothers and sisters, this was God's direct answer to one of Solomon's petitions in 1 Kings 8, 41 through 42. Actually, flip back to chapter 8 real quick. Let's read those verses 41 through 43, which says this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people comes from a far country for your name's sake, 
But they shall hear of your great name and of your might and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Brothers and sisters, the queen of Sheba was one of the first Gentile converts in direct answer to King Solomon's petition. And she would be held up by Jesus, as I've already stated, as a model hundreds of years later of how Gentiles should come to inquire of the Lord and be saved and be blessed. She came seeking wisdom concerning the name of the Lord, and she returns with a far greater prosperity, the prosperity of eternal wisdom, salvation in the greater Solomon to come. You notice how this account is prophetic in numerous ways? As our sister Melody read for us from Psalm 72, a psalm of Solomon. Psalm 72.10 says, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastland rend to him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Saba bring gifts. And in Psalm 72.15, Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. In this psalm, Solomon wasn't speaking about himself. Solomon was prophesying about the greater Solomon, the promised Messiah to come, Jesus Christ. This is also confirmed by Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 45, 14. Surely God is in you, and there is no other God beside him. Furthermore, look at verse 13 in chapter 10. How King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all that she desires, whatever she asked besides what was given by the bounty of the King Solomon. So what we see from Solomon's story is that Solomon was a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ, a sign that pointed to the true and promised king, Jesus Christ. According to Colossians 2.17, Solomon was the shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the real deal, belongs to Christ. We'll see in the Gospels how even more than Solomon, Christ astounded everyone by his wisdom, according to Mark 6, 1 and 2. How his fame spread because of his authoritative teaching in Mark 1, 27 through 28. And how he, Jesus, answered all of the people's questions and left them speechless, according to Mark 12, 34. In the Kings, we see Solomon as one of great prosperity Yet we see in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, Jesus is one of greater prosperity. Colossians 2.3 says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the name of the Lord, whom the Queen of Sheba came to see and hear, and the name which took her breath away. Jesus was the owner and the giver of wisdom that Solomon merely reflected. 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, Christ is the power of God. And the wisdom of God. Jude one twenty five says, Jesus is the only wise God, our Savior. So dear beloved NCBC church family, what does this teach us about how we, like the queen, ought to seek after God? To seek him in his word. To seek him in prayer. To seek him by being present at church Sunday after Sunday. We learn from this story that those who come to seek the name of the Lord will find all they are searching for and leave blessed. When Jesus' first disciples came to him asking many questions, wondering, what in the world, who in the world are you? Jesus' simple answer to them in John chapter 1, 38, come and see. Come and see. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, here's an invitation for you. Come and see. 
Come and see. Seek wisdom in the Bible. Come and seek life's truth in the Bible. Come and seek the one true God and you will not be disappointed. Come and seek life in Jesus and you will not be condemned on that final day of judgment. Which leads us to our final point. What does Solomon's prosperity teach us? Fourth and finally, much shorter point. A greater prophecy. From chapter 10, verses 14 through 29. Verses 14 through 29 tells us of the enormous amount of gold Solomon comes to acquire. It says 666 talents of gold in one year. That's equivalent to $1,501,000,000. I can't even say it. I sound like the guy who does this. What is his name? Huh? Dr. Evil? Right? One billion, one hundred million dollars of gold. That's what he acquires in one year. 666 talents of gold. And Solomon does some crazy elaborate things with his gold because what else are you going to do with all that gold? Right? He makes a bunch of shields, a throne covered with gold, all his drinking vessels, all his cups, houses made with pure gold. It's crazy. Everyone knows, everyone knew back then at least, shields made of gold are useless. It was all for show. It was all to show how great Solomon himself was. And it's summed up in verses 23 and 24. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. In verses 26 through 28, it tells us Solomon not only gathered for himself much gold, but also chariots and horsemen. He specifically imported these horses from Egypt. I just want to sum up these verses basically by saying what Solomon comes to do is going directly against the laws God had given to Israel's kings. What not to do. According to Deuteronomy 17.16, which says, The king, a king of Israel, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. He was going directly against Deuteronomy 17.17, And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turns away, or shall acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Brothers and sisters, it's now obvious, and it's now explicit, that Solomon is not the obedient king. And of course, this happened because Solomon did not obey what follows in the Deuteronomy passage in the following verses. And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in the book a copy of this law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and do them. While Solomon was busy with other priorities, he had forgotten the greater priority, to read and to keep the word of God, which would lead him to disobedience which we'll find out in the next chapter, will lead him to apostasy, to leaving God, abandoning God. Now the very, very interesting thing, which I'm drawing to a close now, which we'll end with, is that Solomon is the only reference in the entire Bible in which the number 666 is related to, other than the Antichrist in Revelation 13, 18, which says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. 6, Revelation 13, 18. Now, am I saying Solomon was the Antichrist? I'm not sure. But what we do know is that Solomon was one of the greatest human beings to ever live in terms of wisdom and prosperity. The epitome of human greatness. Yet Solomon was a mere man. In Revelation, 
We see Jesus, on the other hand, walking amidst the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches, holding seven stars in his right hand, which are the seven angels of the seven churches. Simply, seven, seven, seven is pictured to reference God's perfect rule and reign and redemption and salvation through his Messiah, King Jesus, described in Revelation 7, verses 3 through 8. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that the one true and holy living God and creator sent Jesus, his son, to redeem and save a sinful people whom he set apart as his own from the beginning. And his people, though early on was a chosen people through the nation of Israel, in the coming of Jesus Christ and in his life, death, and resurrection, the true Israel is the people of every nation, language, tribe, people, and tongue whom Christ would purchase by his own blood as our mediator, sacrifice, and judge. Jesus is God's greatest priority. It is through him we are saved. The greatest power and authority. All authority has been given unto me. Jesus is the greatest prosperity. Colossians 2.23 says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And Jesus is the greatest and final prophecy. Revelation is his unveiling. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that final day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord of lords. He is the greater and true temple. So if you're here and you are not a believer of Jesus Christ, he invites you today to repent. Stop trusting in yourself or the things of this world. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. And trust in him with your life today and tomorrow and forevermore. There is no one greater. There is no one else coming. He has come and he is coming again. Look to him. Obey him. Glorify and honor him alone. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, the pastors of this church would be standing at the back doors at the close of service. We'd be happy to talk to you about how amazing and awesome it is to follow Jesus. Especially in the new year. Commit to following him if you are not a follower of Christ. We would love to talk to you. Dear beloved brothers and sisters of New Covenant Baptist, how might we rightly and truly worship and honor our King of kings and Lord of lords in the new year ahead? May he and he alone be our greatest priority. May he and he alone be our greatest authority. May he be our greatest priority, our only hope and our portion. May he be our greatest prophecy, the hope and promise we cling to every single day. Amen? May this prayer from Valley of Vision, titled A Year's End, be our prayer. And we'll conclude. O love beyond compare, thou art good when thou givest and when thou takest away. When the sun shines upon me, when night gathers over me, thou hast loved me before the foundation of the world, and in love didst redeem my soul. Thou dost love me still in spite of my hard heart, ingratitude, distrust. Thy goodness has been with me another year, leading me through a twisting wilderness. In retreat, helping me to advance, when beaten back, making sure headway. Thy goodness will be with me in the year ahead. I hoist sail and draw up anchor with thee as the blessed pilot of my future as of my past. I bless thee that thou hast veiled my eyes to the waters ahead. 
If thou hast appointed storms of tribulation, thou wilt be with me in them. If I have to pass through tempest of persecution and temptation, I shall not drown. If I am to die, I shall see thy face sooner. If a painful end is to be my lot, grant me grace that my faith faileth not. If I am to be cast aside from the service I love, I can make no stipulation. Only glorify thyself in me. Whether in comfort or trial as a chosen vessel, meet always. Use me always for thy use. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for this solemn warning. Thank you for your loving mercies to remind us through your word that you are our greatest priority, authority, prosperity, and prophecy. Father, in Christ alone, my hope is found. All other grounds is sinking sand. There is no other. No one else is coming. Father, in the year ahead, help us to love you with all our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength. Help us to glorify you and bless you. Help us to seek you and see how awesome and amazing you are. We love you and we thank you for this word of reminder for 2023. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.